Feel like you've got a lot on your plate, or maybe you've got so much going on it couldn't possibly fit on just one plate. You've got a lot of plates, fully loaded, spinning at full speed. Well, you're not alone, and you've come to the right place. I'm Liz Cerati. Welcome to Seven Plates Spinning, a podcast serving up ideas and inspiration for keeping all those plates in the air. Today, I am joined by journalist and author Ada Calhoun to talk about her New York Times bestseller, Why We Can't Sleep, Women's New Midlife Crisis. I do want to quickly mention that I also loved Ada's last book, Wedding Toasts I'll Never Give, which was a memoir about her marriage that was excellent. I loved and I highly recommend also. But today I'm really excited to be talking about Why We Can't Sleep, which was named one of the best nonfiction books of 2020 by Amazon and is out in paperback this month. Thank you for speaking with me today, Ada. Hi, Liz. I want to say that in addition to being a book author, you are a freelance journalist who has written for many impressive publications, including Time, The New Yorker, The New York Times, and the genesis of this book, I think, was actually an article that you wrote for for Oprah.com, right? Yeah, I was having a really just like God awful summer. And I had had one other job I do is um, ghostwriting. Mm-hmm. I've just written a lot of books. And I had a whole bunch of work fall through for different reasons all at the same time. And I was just like, I have no income. My career is over. And I was just staring at the ceiling, trying to figure out how we were going to make it financially. And yeah. I was going to get over not you know being a writer anymore and all this kind of stuff. And this editor called me up and said that she was having a hard time and a lot of friends of hers were too. And was I perhaps having a hard time? And would I want to write about Gen X women? I just got this flood of messages for weeks from these you know women my age saying, you know, I feel seen and thank you. And mm-hmm. this is a conversation we need to have more. And then I got to do a book to expand on it. Yeah. I mean, the book spoke to me on so many levels. I, I turned 40 last year. So I'm at the very tail end of Gen X. Uh-huh. I, I found such comfort in reading your book because it was like, (laughs) oh my God, I'm not alone. These things I'm feeling, so are so many other women. The first big aha moment for me was when you talked about the idea of having it all. You talked about how we can thank women of the boomer generation for blazing some trails for us. They battled unchecked sexism, fought their way into careers that had all but excluded women before really while Mm -hmm. raising family, raising children. And that means that we as Gen X women have far more choices today and far more opportunities to have it all, right? But you say that this expansion of choice kind of creates this fallacy in a way for Gen X women. Why Why is that? You have infinite possibilities when you start out, but as you start making choices, your field narrows quite a bit. I mean, you, you can't do everything. You can't do all the things all at once. It's just not possible. And I think right. a lot of us bought into this idea that if we just worked hard enough, that we could have families and high-flying careers and look amazing and have a really bustling social life mm-hmm. and be great caretakers to our parents and all of this stuff all at once. And there not are only there. could, but have to. Oh, it's yeah, kind of like, to. Mm-hmm. you know, like you said, it's not a bright new option, but a mandatory social condition <laughs> that stuck out to yeah. me. Kind of like you, ha- was- you have to, or you're a failure. If you exactly. Don't. And that was something that I heard in, in so many of the interviews I did. I talked to a couple hundred women. Almost all of them would say things like, you know, what did I do wrong? How did I not make this all happen? Because I think we were raised with this idea that it would not be difficult, that we would be able right. to pull it off because we've been given all these, these 
these opportunities. And the fact is, though, were we like, because you look at how we grew up and, and the economy and the use levels when we were kids, I mean, yeah. all these different numbers, you look at them and you think, are these children who were set up to have everything? And then the answer is no. Right. And so like the walls have been broken down, but that's not the only thing. It was just, we didn't just need the walls broken down so we could get into the building. It's like, now we're here and it's a shit show. <laughs> Yeah, so. exactly. And, you know, men, did men go into the home and like learn to cook and take care of all the kids in the same numbers that women went out into right. the workforce in the, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s? And the answer is no, women just got a whole second, as they say, the second shift. And so they were still doing most of the caregiving right. um, while also having to earn half the money. And and that just made us incredibly tired. Yeah. So having it all, is, it means having the, the work-life balance that we always hear about that seems to always elude me. <laughs> um, you know, we should, ba- we should be able to have a balance between our career and our families. But then you also talk about how raising kids today looks fairly different than it did for our boomer parents. You quoted a line from a book, All Joy and No Fun, about how children went from being our employees to our bosses. <laughs> and like mm-hmm. our lives outside of work revolve around meeting the needs of our children who seem to have a much busier schedule and much more, they have many more demands of our time than our parents dealt with when we were kids. So what did you learn about how the realities of today's parenting experience is impacting Gen X women. Yeah, well, that book you mentioned, I thought did a really good job of talking about how different we are with our kids than our parents were with us. I mean, yeah. I, and I heard these stories again and again from the women I talked to or one of them said, you know, that her mother came over, her boomer mother and said, you know, it was looking and just in, in fascination as if at the zoo and said, you know, why do you play with them? Like, when <laughs> yeah. children, like, like we never played with you. That's not what you do with children. And I think that perhaps in response to how we grew up with this sort of hands-off philosophy, Gen X parents, especially mothers, tend to be extremely hands-on and to really want to nurture our children emotionally and, yeah. like you said, with these schedules of opportunities and all this stuff. And, yeah. and I think it's to our credit. I think it's, you know, it gets knocked a lot as um, hovering or whatever, but it comes from a really wonderful place, which is wanting to make our kids secure and to and to give our kids this sort of emotional support that a lot of us feel like we didn't necessarily get growing up in the 70s and 80s. I got a laugh out of one um, passage in the book where you talked about finding these DVDs of Sesame Street from the 70s that had a warning label on them. Oh, yeah. No, they're hilarious. And you watch them and it's so funny because I watched them with my son. There's like at one point, I think it was in the credits, like there's kids jumping off buildings in like empty lots onto like, you know, rusty springs of old mattresses. And I'm like, yeah, that was, that's roughly what it was like. But Sounds looking about at it right. now through his eyes, I'm like, that's insane. Right, <laughs> I was remembering you- like bottle rocket fights with my cousins where we actually mm-hmm. shot bottle rockets at each other, like around buildings. Right. I'm like, and your parents either now. didn't know or didn't care. They were kind of like, as long as you came home by the time it was dark, it was like, we're all good. And yeah. uh, my husband always talks about how he um, he was like, well, I used to ride my bike to the mall and it was 14 miles away from this house. And I'm like, oh my God, your mom didn't say, no, he rode his bike. So, and then you said you felt a mix of nostalgia for your childhood and horror at your son being exposed to the alternate <laughs> universe. I yeah, it was like, so do not go to the empty lot and jump on Rusty Springs. Right. Like, and to, yet, yeah. you know, there was something kind of nice about the yes. We didn't need to be entertained by someone else all the time. It took very little for us to go out and find something to do. Something dangerous to do. Yes. Right. That's right. Um, so I found this stat astounding because you, you said that a working mother in 2000 spent 
just as much time interacting with her children as did a stay-at-home mother in 1975. I found that number kind of horrifying. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> well, and it's funny because you see a lot of um, time you survey data like that mm-hmm. and where women are doing, just doing so much now, like between yeah. taking care of kids and working and caregiving for aging parents, cleaning the house and cooking. And I mean, you, you look at, and there almost are not enough hours in the day. And so then you're like, well, what's what's being sacrificed? And often it is time alone, yes. um, you know, or, mm-hmm. or sleep. Yeah. Well, let's talk for a minute about our careers and the experience of Gen X women in building a career and achieving success, however you define that in the workplace. Um, you told a story in the book about hearing Carla Harris speak at an event. And I've heard Carla Harris speak at a couple of events also, and she's so impressive mm-hmm. and she's really inspiring inspiring speaker. For those who haven't heard of her, she's a a Wall Street veteran, a senior executive at Morgan Stanley. And you shared that she was addressing a question from the audience about imposter syndrome. And she advised the woman in the audience not to doubt herself and that like when a boss says you're worth the promotion or some other acknowledgement, trust their their judgment. You quoted Harris saying, do not stay down in the valley. There's too much room at the top of the mountain. And it's an inspiring idea that there's room for all of us at the top of the mountain. But then you talked about the realities of many Gen X women who do everything right, but just can't seem to find their way to the top of the mountain that we mm-hmm. keep hearing has room for us. What what do you think is keeping us from reaching <laughs> the top of the mountain? Well, I mean, first of all, she's she is an amazing figure and mm-hmm. the amount of hardship she had to deal with getting where she yes. wound up, you know, in the in the finance world when she did it, it's it's amazing. However, I was at that conference talking to, to a bunch of women. You know, I remember one woman in particular who was like around your age on the younger end of Gen X and she was very excited and she mm-hmm. was very ambitious and she was working extremely hard, but she was talking about what she had to do in order to make her schedule work. And it was like, mm-hmm. she had a she had a baby, she'd had postpartum, but she had to like work through all of that. Her job was, her promotion was given away to somebody else because she was on maternity leave. It was just kind of one thing after the other. So basically she has to wake up at 6 a.m. Then she and her husband each work 12 hour days. They oh come God. home at like 6 p.m., you know, go go to daycare, pick up a baby. It was just like the grueling soul Yeah, it's exhausting just hearing about it. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it was like with no support, you know, I don't think she got any maternity leave to speak of, but mm-hmm. beyond the, the minimum, the amount of money she's spending on childcare is basically equal to her salary. You know, I, I don't know, there's right. something so traumatizing about this and the idea that, that it's on her to reach the mountaintop without any assistance. It just seemed unfair. I felt, right. I felt for this woman. Yeah. Again, it's kind of like if she doesn't feel like she's getting there, it, there's some flaw. She's not doing it right somehow. You know, versus this system that's (laughs) making it like nearly impossible no matter what you do. Right. Um, You talked about pursuing work that you love, which is another thing I feel like I read so much about, like doing work that's your passion. And, you know, some of us are lucky enough to be able to spend our days doing work that we that we love. But um, I feel like you hear so much about that now. Like Mm -hmm. you're not only supposed to work and be successful at it, (laughs) but you're supposed to be living out your passion every day. Yeah, I went to another conference that was mostly for like small business Mm -hmm. owners and independent, you know, people. A lot of them were like life coaches and stuff like that. and they often talked about leaving the corporate job to do exactly what you mentioned. Like, you know, I'm going to go follow my dream. I'm going to do yeah. what I love. And the result was that they were now working, you know, 10 times as hard for like a 10th of the money. It was so difficult. It sounds and, so easy, you know, when you watch Yeah, your, do what you love. You know, about someone who did it, yeah. Right. Um, but it's it just carries this whole other burden. Right. And and making money, making an income, having dual income in your household, that's a source of stress for so many 
people. I mean, I feel fortunate in this regard. I work as a marketing consultant and I've had fairly steady work throughout the pandemic this past year, which I know is something many people have not. But I will say that money continues to be one of the, if not the largest source of stress in my life. Um, And Mm -hmm. you say that that's the case for so many Gen X women. And you cited that we're some of the best educated human beings ever, but among the first adults in recent history, American history, that will be in worse financial shape than our parents, which is fairly depressing. Yeah, it is depressing. And it's what I was trying to do with the book too, is just remove the shame around it. This idea that it's supposed to be different, that we're supposed to be better, that we're supposed to make more money than our parents. It's just not true for our generation. And just for a lot of different reasons that I try to lay out, we weren't set up for it. I mean, the the costs of housing and education and food and all those things keep going up and up and up. Wages are stagnant. I mean, this is even before the pandemic. right? Um, And of course, now it's way worse. And a lot of people are really struggling. And it's not because they didn't meditate or, (laughs) you know, get the right degree or whatever. It's because the system is in a really rough place. And and even if you work really hard and are really smart and ambitious, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to like make more than your dad did. And then when you fail to make what you feel is an adequate amount of money, you feel shame for not being able to live up to whatever expectations we've set for ourselves. Yeah. No, and that's been one of the hardest things for me is just to start to see money as like math. Mm. Like we need this amount of money. Therefore, we need to, you know, how will we make it? We could do it this way or this way. Whatever it is, just to try to think of it that way as opposed to as this emotional burden and um, it it symbolizes freedom and like, you know, all this other stuff. I think it's really hard to just detach your bank account and your finances from all this emotional stuff. And I heard over and over again from women that they felt like they just, they wanted to be able to spend money, especially on their children. And if they didn't, they felt tremendous anxiety, like that they couldn't afford the camp or they couldn't afford the like educational toys or whatever it was. There was this sense beyond just like, oh, I couldn't do that too bad. It was this sense of failure. So the book is called Why We Can't Sleep. And you say Gen X women literally aren't sleeping, or at least not sleeping well or enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you cited a, a report from 2017 that said perimenopausal women were least likely to sleep more than seven hours a night, followed by postmenopausal uh, women. And I did an episode of the podcast in December about perimenopause, and man, it scared the crap out of me. <laughs> but it was my favorite episode yet because I learned so much. I literally knew nothing about perimenopause, and uh, you know, you learn about your body uh, puberty as a teen, and then you learn about your body during pregnancy, and then you hear about this looming menopause thing that you don't have to worry about until your 50s, hopefully, but nothing about what happens in between. And a lot happens in between. (laughs) And this is affecting (laughs) our sleep, among other things. Yeah. So um, that actually, that chapter wound up being so long, the chapter about perimenopause. Because um, yeah. the idea of the book, right, is it's like there are all these different reasons why we're sleepless and full of anxiety. And yeah. some of them are money and some of them are relationships and whatever. But one of the big ones is all the physical stuff that happens yeah. to us. And it usually starts about 10 years before we actually go through menopause. And yeah. menopause is defined as like a year with no period. But, you know, leading up to that, it can be um, 10, 15 years before that when it starts. And and the symptoms include, yeah, sleeplessness, mood swings, like mm-hmm. women describe just these rushes of anger, like where they throw their phone yeah. down or something like that. Uh-huh. I definitely, I broke a colander <laughs> a couple <laughs> years ago. Um, you know, I just, uh-huh. this is this 
rage and emotionality, like crying. Anyway, you go through all these symptoms and, and I think that they get, again, treated as like, oh, you don't have the willpower to like not eat that cookie or, right. you know, you're or, oh, you're, you're so emotional. Well. Yeah. Right. And yeah. you go, you should meditate. Why don't you meditate? You won't throw your phone anymore. <laughs> um, when in fact, this is actually a really profound time of life for us, these, mm-hmm. these, you know, three, five, 10, 15 years, and we need to get proper care. And the problem is it's very hard to find proper care because I found some horrible statistics about how few doctors actually get training in menopause specifically and in menopause medicine and all stuff. And I think part of it is that there was this real scare around hormone replacement therapy in the early 2000s. And, um, you know, I talk about that and and how it was really badly handled in the media um, that actually for a lot of women, there are hormonal options out there that that can make a huge difference. And, you know, there's, there's diet and exercise stuff too. But, but as far as like dealing with those symptoms, which for some women, and I have friends who had hot flashes all day, every day, and they couldn't concentrate and they couldn't sleep. And it was like, it was so bad, but they were so scared of going on hormones. A lot of times they got put on antidepressants instead or yeah. you know other things that, that weren't exactly the right thing for them because they didn't have doctors who were menopause trained. And, and so that's one thing I encourage women to do is like, go find a good gynecologist who understands this period of your life because it it also has repercussions later. It's like, you know, if you if you don't take care of yourself now, you know, they, they say when you're in your 60s and 70s, you're more likely to have osteoporosis and, you know, all this other mm-hmm. stuff. So we need to take care of ourselves. Yeah. And I mean, part of it is just admitting to yourself that you're at the point in your life where you need to consider those things, right? Because I think we're a lot of women are in sort of denial about this and beat ourselves up over it versus saying like, there's actually something legitimate that I might need to talk to my doctor about. You know, and yeah. you call this the new midlife crisis and like women's midlife crisis looks so different than the stereotypical male midlife crisis that's like loud and in your face, like buying a new sports <laughs> and car. And sexy. Yeah. And yeah. then like, you know, and some women do buy a sports car, have an affair or whatever. Also, right. it's not just men, but like more often you say women's crises are quieter. You said we sneak our suffering in around the edges of our caretaking work, which I thought was so true. Why Why do we do this to ourselves is what I was wondering though. Yeah. I think because we want to do a lot of things. I think, yeah. you know, because of how we're raised and because mm-hmm. of how well educated we are and how ambitious we are. I think, I know speaking for myself, like I love my career and I love my kid and I, you know, I, and I like cooking and, you know, I want to do all these things. Yeah. I feel that it is all possible with enough effort. So if I am tired or if I am, you know, struggling, it doesn't mean I'm not going to like bring dinner to my parents, you know, who need dinner. I will just cry in the car. (laughs) I I will figure it out somehow. And, And I think, you know, it's, yeah. it's in some ways what I wanted to do with the book is just to point out how much women are doing and just mm-hmm. say, we should at least be proud of ourselves. We should at least look at this and think like, you know what? We, we had kind of a rough road to hoe given how we were raised and given all these other circumstances of, you know, entering the job market and jobless recession, entering, you know, house buying in a in the housing crisis. Like, you know, we've just had bad luck, but look at all the stuff we've done. Like look at our kids who are really great, you know, and, and look at what we've done in the workplace. And I, you know, I just, I think we don't take enough time often to really appreciate how much we've accomplished and, and, and how, how proud we should be of ourselves. I also think, and you talk about this in the book, we recognize how good we have it in a lot of ways. You know, the good things, whatever good things we have, we're so grateful. 
for them. Yeah. And so I think, like you said, that kind of keeps people from talking about things that don't feel right or don't feel good because you don't ever want to be seen as whining or complaining or ungrateful because yeah. we, we know how lucky we are. That was a struggle doing the interviews for the book because um, a lot of women I talked to, they would start out by saying, you know what, I don't even know if I, I'm not having midlife crisis. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm so lucky and I have no right to complain at all. And then they would tell you stories about how much they were doing. So many of us are dealing with looking after little kid in our 40s looking after little kids and aging parents or dealing with fertility stuff because we you know maybe wanted kids and and waited um, which is a reasonable thing to do and then couldn't find a partner or you know or couldn't have kids or you know we're single and happy about it but getting all this pressure all the time you know from people seeing like oh you didn't you didn't get it all did you you know I think we can talk about that without it being whining I think we can just you know I was, you know, I say in the book too, like, look at how many movies and books there are about the men's midlife crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, why can't we have a little bit of of that attention just to acknowledge that it's not easy? It's a hard time of life. Yeah. And so the good news is, you say after writing this book, you see a way out of the the crisis. And you mentioned giving ourselves credit as one thing. You know, stepping back and saying like, pat on the back, I've actually done some good things. What else? How do we? move forward. Yeah. Finding support in wherever you can find it. So like I definitely went out and got a good gynecologist. I got a good accountant. I, you know, I got a good pet sitter. Like I was just like, I <laughs> need know? to have like all my army of like uh-huh. help um, with all the things I'm trying to do. And that made a big difference. Also just talking to other women who are in this same yes. um, phase of life. And I started a women's journalist bar night with two girlfriends of mine. And we, I mean, before the pandemic hit once a month or so, we'd like get together and have readings and speakers. And it wound up just being this really fun, you know, slightly boozy, regular event. Mm-hmm. And we just, we laughed a lot and it, it really felt good. And so I recommend the more you can do that, the more community you can build, um, the better. Yeah. And it's like at this point in our life when a lot of us are actually taking steps back from that because we feel like we're so busy. I mean, I know I had cooking club with a group of women. We would get together once a month and it was more, like you said, it was more about sitting around and having a few glasses of wine and <laughs> stuff. Mm-hmm. But we all liked to cook and that was we would get together and we'd eat yeah. dish and eat. But then when we all started getting busy with, we had kids and we all moved out of the central area where we had lived and we were kind of more spread out. And so we mm-hmm. stopped you know, and, and we don't see each other anymore as much. And um, now's when I really need it probably though. I should start yeah. the cooking club back up. Yeah, do the cooking club. <laughs> Other than camaraderie, you talk about just letting go of the all the expectations that we had for ourselves growing up, right? And just kind of resetting or reframing how you look at your, how you look at your life, which I found to be a really helpful idea. That's what I'm kind of hoping the book, I mean, that's one thing that a lot of women who've read the book have said is that it kind of retold the story of our generation mm-hmm. and the this way where you can see yourself as like the heroine, the kind of like hard scramble heroine and not yeah. as this failure. It wasn't that I just screwed up and I didn't fulfill my amazing potential. It's like, no, look, I was able to pull off a lot with very little help. And, and I just think that's the story we need to tell. Yeah. And it's okay if it doesn't feel good all the time. I thought this was really interesting. Actually, you said all your advice you're giving, uh, it's not what's commonly called self-care. And I feel like I talk a lot about self-care and needing to take care of myself, but you're like, a day at the spa is not going to cut it. (laughs) This is not (laughs) what we need. We don't need more advice. We don't need self-care. We need solace, you said. Um, And and, uh, you said, one of the biggest midlife problems I had to confront was anxiety paired with an abiding belief that I should not be anxious that's unreasonable. It would be weird, frankly, if I weren't anxious. And that's so the <laughs> truth. It's like, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with us. And you know, there's going to be bumps along the way and just kind of like ride the wave instead of feeling like we're falling off a cliff. 
is how I yeah. And it. and it, it's it's time it's circumscribed time wise. I mean, mid midlife yeah. it's not doesn't last forever. Like we will yes. be old soon enough, and and you know the kids will be out of the house, and a lot will be different. Mm-hmm. And so right now it's just it just might be. Yeah, like you said, a, a wave to ride. And and I do think sometimes that there is this toxic message out there that like if we just get the right diet, if we just get the right meditation app, if we it's just a magic know, answer. Yeah. And yeah. that the self-help book will like cure us. And I think a lot of that stuff does work for a little bit, you know, and the spa day mm-hmm. does maybe relax us for a day. But I think just it's good to look at the bigger picture, which is this is a hard time. I, I completely agree. I highly recommend reading the book, which as I said earlier, is out in paperback this month. We just kind of scratched the surface in this conversation today. There's so much in there and it is, it's very informative, but also, as I said, just kind of comforting because you do get this sense of like, okay, I see there is something bigger going on than just my own failings. (laughs) So (laughs) thank you. Thank you again for your time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been great talking to you. Thank you for having me on. To learn more or get your own copy of Why We Can't Sleep, visit adacalhoun.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please visit sevenplatespinning.com and subscribe to continue listening. And consider leaving a rating or a review on whatever platform you access the podcast. I so appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. 